0: Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host.
1: Dr. Heidi Horsley.
0: Well, Heidi, we have got a great guest on today because he is a doctor and is so knowledgeable about grief, loss, uh, about life and death and and the importance of recognizing death and, and how people cope with it. So why don't you introduce him, Heidi?
1: Okay. Like you said, Mom, we're going to be talking about life and death decisions today. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Jeff Spees. He is the author of *Dying with Ease*, a compassionate guide for making end-of-life decisions. And he has spent his medical career with people facing serious illness and death, first as an oncologist and then as a hospice physician. Welcome to the show, Dr. Spees. Well, it's great to
0: have you on, Jeff. Well, I, I was wondering just to start out with, um, which you know, how did you get into the area of grief
2: and loss? You know, it it just I just merged into it, because I, when I started out in uh, oncology, back, this was back in the 80s, it was hematology and medical oncology, and it was the laboratory blood science that drew me there. But it was the cancer patients that kept me there. And to get to know them, because if, you know, it, especially in those days when you're in every week and you're getting chemo, this was before the good anti-nausea drugs, yeah, um, and we have to find some way to relate, I found that just getting to know patients as individuals and as their, fam- and their families was very meaningful. I uh, became a, a part-time uh, volunteer hospice medical director for a local agency, and just fell in love with being with people through their periods of suffering, through their periods of loss. Um, It just seemed like part of the job. And gradually, I was able to morph my uh, uh, career path into uh, through palliative care, hospital-based palliative care, and and for the last uh, uh, 15 years of my career in the hospice world.
0: Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, uh, we generally find that people that can handle this kind of this kind of difficult area, have had some experience early on in
2: life. Uh, did that happen to you? No, I guess I was always fascinated with loss, fascinated with death. I grew up on a on a chicken and cattle farm, and we used to have to clear out the dead chickens, you know, every so often. And it's just dying just happened. It's just part of part of life. And I'm I'm not saying that I have am cavalier. I I, I but it it never seemed to be something fearsome uh, uh-huh. to, to me or something alien, let's put it you that way. You know,
0: that's way. interesting because I grew up in the same kind of situation and you do see life and death and you get attached to animals and the calves go to be slaughtered, you know, yeah. and... Uh, and uh, the chickens that are running around you <laughs> eating for dinner that night. That's right. That's so, right. <laughs> there is a little disconnect now with life and death, isn't there? Yes,
2: the, I think I think there really is. I think there really is. I th- I think it's starting to come back, but but if we look um, at what happened in epidemics in the past, so during the Black Death, people died in their homes. In fact, up until maybe the 1940s and 1950s, that's what happened. People died at home and there wasn't much you could do ab- about it anyway. Uh, once antibiotics became the numerical drugs and could save lives, then that changed the, the paradigm. That also meant that if you got sick and wanted the good drugs, you needed to be in the hospital. But that's, So that's also where you went when you got real sick, was to go to the hospital and eventually death became part of, of the hospital institutional world and you know funeral the funeral home industry kind of morphed at the same time that to provide experiences uh, and soothing and um, a bit of denial uh, that this is really what's going on here but it, it made it, it made it easy um, uh, so that so that it became, death became really separate from life, some, something that others went through or others experienced or or that there wasn't as much familiarity with. Um, yeah.
1: Well, well I, I didn't grow up seeing anything die. Okay. I mean, until, you know, I grew up in a suburb and in upstate New York and, and then when my brother died at 17, it was a shock because it, like you said, it wasn't familiar, familiar to me. And I remember my mom talking about how her grandmother was in the living room in a casket, wasn't she? For days. Oh, yeah, <laughs> people came to the house to see her. Yeah. The, the first person I ever saw dead was my brother. So yeah. it, was, it was a very foreign thing to me, like you said. It's not something, because we have re- removed it so much from everyday life.
2: It it is foreign. And and for Americans in particular, for humanity in general, but I think we Americans are really the best at this, because our American psyche is that we are able to control anything. This is our manifest destiny. This is who our American exceptionalism, the pioneer can-do individual entrepreneurial spirit, that we can control everything. And dying is something we can't control. And it's I think it frightens us in that regard. It makes it foreign. We don't know how to think about something like that. I think that's a yeah, I think that's a piece of the reality. And, yeah. and
0: I'm wondering now with what's going on with Covid, these virtual funerals, and uh, you know and, and it's kind of weird to think about showing a body over the internet. So I mean that that is kind of bizarre. Uh, having an open coffin and having everybody walk by. You feel like you can't cry anymore and then you cry with them it's like it's like this wonderful joining in catharsis at the reality that here is actually a dead body and you know they're not with us anymore and you know re- seeing I, is believing i guess i don't know
1: saying goodbye for the last time too you're seeing them for the last time
0: yes so there's some ritual around that i am seeing my nephews and nieces and uh, not wanting to see bodies, uh, not wanting to see their parents, and I, I honestly, I'm like, it's real. I mean, it's hard to deal with that. It's real. It's not a, a just um, a memorial, happy service. Let's celebrate their life.
2: I, that's so interesting, Lord, because because I I don't tend to think of it that way, but but it is so true. The when you see um, a news item that somebody's, uh, some uh, soldier's remains has been repatriated from Europe or from Vietnam or from Korea. And the family is there and in tears um, for something that happened decades ago, uh, that now there's something real about this, whatever it is, this physical remains. I think that's fascinating. How do you talk
0: about the 9-11 families? Oh, yes. Just about
2: five
1: well, yes, I worked with the firefighter families for 10 years that had lost someone in the Trade Center here in New York. And all the families that I worked with did not have remains. Right. There was nothing. And, you know, so, you know, how to memorialize somebody and how to pay tribute to somebody. And some of them waited for quite a while to have memorial services. And then they finally said, you know, we have to We have to do it. get together. This isn't, this isn't good for us. We can't keep That's waiting. Until they are found, they might never be.
2: One thing that both of you mentioned, um, Heidi, when you mentioned the, we can't wait, we have to get together. And Gloria, when you mentioned the uh, crying together, I think is a gigantic piece of what, well, grief and loss, but also suffering is all about uh, and how it can be alleviated is, is, well, the, that's the great word, compassion, the being with, the suffering with uh, another person lessens everybody's suffering and, and grief and sense of loss. And uh, the, um, the, the saddest thing, people that I, the, the saddest situations that I uh, ex- experienced in the hospice unit that I, that I ran is, was the people who were alone and who had no one and you try and be the family for that person and maybe they were fine but it seemed so sad to me. Well that's uh, why
1: I think what's going on right now is is sad because you've got COVID and and you you can't visit my aunt that she is in hospice isolated from her family. Yeah yes
2: it's it's huge it's huge and you know, virtual z- Zoom and Skype visits are fine. Looking through the window is fine, but it's not the same.
0: It's, it's not like fine. it's not like kissing, touching. And by the way, you know, you can kiss and touch dead bodies when, Absolutely. You, when you go see them. I mean, wasn't it important for you to see your brother, Heidi, even though he was kind of wrapped in gauze because he had been burned. But uh, how did you feel about that, Heidi?
1: I felt like it wasn't true and that it wasn't him. Yeah. And seeing his foot and knowing that it was him, for me, I kind of needed proof that it, he, it really happened. And I know that in the short run, it, it does help people to see bodies, but they found out in the long run, actually, hmm. it doesn't help as much as you would think. Right. right. At yeah. the end of the day, we all have to do the, the long, hard journey of grieving. Right. And right. they're not going to come back.
0: What about families who didn't have a good death, uh, who even had hospice and it wasn't a good death? Yeah. And people are only in hospice nowadays for seven days. I know. People think people are in hospice for long periods. So I, I didn't know that. They're only in for seven days? Yep, on the
2: average. On average, it's uh, late, well, late referrals. How? When's the right time to refer to hospice? No, nobody knows. But the uni, kind of the universal response to families referred to hospice was we should have done this earlier because yeah. far too many, it's because you can only do so much. But even so, most of those families, and I'm coming back to your question, most of those families still appreciate the experience, even if it was only... Um, for a very few days, or even one one night, because somebody was there and cared, and maybe asked the question that nobody had asked before. Uh, the 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 question I tried to ask every family was so, tell me about your mom, mm-hmm. and and the number of people who would cry, and several who had said why didn't anybody ever ask us this before when we were asking us to make decisions and things like that? Anyway, what about people who have experienced bad, bad deaths of, of family members? I think it's very difficult. It's, it's clearly a traumatic event. Um, and I, I think that uh, I uh, try and, you know, the teams really try, identify that as someone that, significant risk for whether you call it complicated grief or dysfunctional grief or what grieving or whatever um, or major depression uh do that because the the set of feelings that can pop up can can be overwhelming the uh, i didn't do this well i i'm i'm guilty i i failed or i made the wrong choices or that son of a bitch. He was never going to do it right, or whatever those feelings feelings are. I think that's really hard, and hopefully that's one reason I think that, at least as far as hospice care goes, that requirement for bereavement contact for at least 13 months after after the death, I think is essential because um, you never know when and, and 13 months may not be enough. And some people will never let you in. But I, I, I think that um, that's really, that's really hard. It's really hard. I'm, I'm not saying anything you don't know.
1: Well, well my, when my father-in-law died, he was dying, he had hospice and they were amazing. Mm-hmm. And he gave all the nurses nicknames. Yeah. Became very close to them. They became like surrogate daughters that he never had. Yeah. And the hard part for the family wasn't having hospice. They loved it. They, like you said, wish they had done it earlier. It was when as soon as he died, everybody left. Yeah. And there wasn't any follow-up. And it became it was really lonely for my mother-in-law because people were gone. All her support was gone. That's
2: that's huge. That's huge. And it is a whole, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it, it is a whole.
0: I know there are a lot of hospices that are providing um, group you know, yes. counseling and stuff. And right. I always recommend to people that they, uh, if they've had a loss and they're feeling that to check around your local hospices and, yeah. and maybe it won't be the one you went to, but you might find a group at another hospital or at a hospital or somewhere right. like that. Well, I wanted to talk about a little bit about your book Dying with ease, a compassionate guide to making wiser end-of-life decisions. I want to say that this is really a good book. If you are thinking about hospice, I mean, and and thinking about grief and loss, I mean, this is invaluable. um, I'm going to keep it on my shelf. I want you to know, everybody, I'm keeping this on my shelf forever because he's got tips and thoughts and ideas. How do you pick a hospice and what do you look for and what's going on with death and dying in America today, it, it's a gem. It, it's part of my library. Thank you very
2: much for this, Jeff. Oh well, that's that's tremendous. That that's uh, uh, I'll have to hire you as my uh, publicist associate here. That's was a pretty good plug. Um, this book came out of just the experiences and what Wonderful I le- learned from from patients and in conversations. And but the, what was the heaviness I noticed was the amount of suffering that was happened happening because in my mind of the I don't know if it's death denial or death fear or death avoidance, but just not recognizing that not just grandma, not just Aunt Sally, not just my brother, but I will die. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of got to be okay. And if I want it to be okay, I'm the only one that can make it be okay. And the, in order to make it be okay, you have to recognize it and, and face it. So that's kind of the bottom line piece. It's, I know it's not the topic that everybody wants to talk about, but I'm glad you find that the way I came at it was, was, was meaningful to you.
0: It's great. And I, again, I would suggest that people have this and have it, have it handy. I mean, You may not need it right now, but at some point you may be able to give it to a friend or give some advice or use it yourself.
2: How do people get your book? So it's available on all the sites. Hopefully at your local bookstore. We've got to keep them open. Um, And uh, if they want to get in contact uh, with me, uh, the best one-stop shopping is at the website, uh, drjeffspies.com. You can see how the name is spelled right there. It's uh, drjeffspies.com. And uh, there's a link there to the blog. And thank you so much for being on our show today. You're delight. Thank you. Thank you so
0: much.
1: Thanks, Jeff. And thanks for all the good work you're doing in the world. Peace.
0: And thanks everybody for joining us on this show today. And Heidi and I always want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on us until you find your own and God bless. I'm
1: Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.